Welcome back for episode 48 in our study of the book of Revelation. This episode is called, Then Shall They Be Gods. I'm Sam Bracken, your host. Our teacher is Dr. Breck England, who is teaching us about the book of Revelation by relating it to the Latter-day Saint temple experience. The Come Follow Me reading for this week is the book of Revelation, that fascinating but puzzling final book of the New Testament. One way to understand Revelation is to pick up a copy of Breck's book, The Bright and Morning Star, Finding and Following Jesus Through the Book of Revelation. Breck, what's helpful about your book? I believe that the temple is the key to understanding Revelation. When I started to write about Revelation through the lens of the temple, all the symbolism came clear to me. Well, most of it. <laughs> for, for example, the Great Tribulation. It's all about the adversary's attack on us as we go through our mortal life. Then messengers from heaven come to give further light and to seal us up to eternal life. All that is, that's all temple information, and it's, it's right there in the book of Revelation. For me, your book really helped me understand both the temple and the scriptures a lot better. Our listeners can find the book easily on Amazon.com. Just type in the author's name, Breck England, or the title, The Bright and Morning Star, and put in your order. And if you like it, please leave a positive review on Amazon. But for now, let's get back to our episode number 48, Then Shall They Be Gods. In our last episode, we learned about the marriage of the Lamb, or the sealing that takes place between the Lord and his faithful saints. Right. So we're now at the end of John's vision of the heavenly temple. The saints have been washed, anointed, clothed, given a new name, and they've been through the great tribulation of mortality. They've received covenants and come through the veil into the presence of the Lord. And the sealing is the culminating ordinance that takes place at the end of the book of Revelation. In a way, uh, the sealing between Christ and his church is the ultimate expression of atonement. If you think about it, the saints are finally at one with him, and that's what atonement means. But the at-one-ment or atonement between Christ and the church is also true of the at-one-ment of couples who are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which is all connected with the temple. The temple sealing mirrors the marriage relationship of the Lamb and the bride, who is the church. In Doctrine and Covenants 132.19, uh, we learn that the saints, quote, receive their exaltation and glory in all things, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever and ever, close quote. Now, this is the definition of exaltation, the continuation of the lives, the continuation of life. In other words, an internal increase of uh, loving family relations. Section 132 goes on to say, then shall they be gods. It is this fullness and continuation of the lives that makes a man and woman not just a king and queen or a priest and priestess, but a god and a goddess. Now, Revelation 22.5 says this, quote, and they shall reign forever and ever, unquote. Notice that these are the same words 
spoken of the Savior in Revelation 11.15, when it says, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's hard to hear those words without singing them. And he shall reign okay, forever. That's the hallelujah chorus. Right? I, I love that chorus. Uh, now, now, all of a sudden, these words apply to the saints also. This idea of becoming a god is overwhelming to me. I just don't see myself that way. Well, who wouldn't be overwhelmed by something like that? People in other religions find that idea really offensive, don't they? Well, many of them do. But the early Christians thought it was only natural. Uh, the teaching that humans could become gods is everywhere in the writings of the early Christian teachers. I, I know it's in ancient Greek yeah. mythology, right? Like you could become as god, right? Yeah. Uh, the church father, um, Irenaeus, pronounced Irenaeus by some, he lived in the second century. And so he was very close to the apostles. And he taught that, quote, the word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, did, through his transcendent love, become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself, unquote. And at about the same time, Clement of Alexandria, who's another early Christian leader that was probably taught by someone who was taught by the apostles, okay, so mm -hmm. it's not very far away from the apostles. Clement, he wrote this, The word of God became man, that thou mayest learn how man may become God. Wow. <laughs> Unquote. Isn't that interesting? That's very interesting. Now, I just read this week... Um, again, uh, from St. Athanasius, who said uh, uh, something similar. Man, or Christ became man so that man may become Christ uh, or become a, a god, right? Now, these teachings, this kind of teaching gradually lost favor in the Christian church. And by the 17th century, which is, what, 400 years ago, mm -hmm. they, they actually dropped Clement from the list of saints, partly because he taught this. They, they just don't like it anymore. Mm -hmm. But they used to. Mm. Now, Psalm 82 says, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you, unquote. It's interesting to me that the, the Eastern Orthodox Church, not the Catholics, but the Eastern Orthodox, they still teach something like this. One Orthodox priest asks this question, quote, do we hear that voice? Do we, do we understand the meaning of this calling to be gods? In other words, we are each destined to become a God, to be, to be like God himself. This is the purpose of life, that we are to become just like God, true gods, unquote. That is orthodox teaching. Huh? So if you're a Greek Orthodox, this would be part of your religion. In my family lineage, there's yeah, definitely you, a you, lot of Greek Orthodox. You have belief. some Greek uh, lineage. Yeah. And the Greek word for becoming a God is the word is uh, theosis or, or theopoesis. If you ask a Greek Orthodox priest, what's the difference between you and, say, the Catholics, you would say, well, the difference is we believe we can, theosis, we can become like God. They don't buy that. But how is the idea of becoming a God connected with the idea of eternal marriage? Uh, good question. The early Christians did connect theosis or um, becoming a god. They did connect that to marriage. Uh, in particular, the Gnostics, who were um, an early Christian group. They connected uh, holy marriage, the term in Greek is eros gamos, 
that connected holy marriage with deifying power. Uh, the Gnostics believed that, quote, to be deprived of this marriage is endless torment, unquote. That's, um, that's right out of ancient Christian writings. Today, modern Orthodox uh, Church sees uh, in the ancient Yeros Gamos, the divine marriage, the, quote, the embodiment of the mystery of theosis and a transfiguration, a deification. That's what marriage is supposed to be. Wow. This is the Orthodox Church, which we're not terribly familiar with. No, but I really like what I'm hearing. It's cool. Yeah. In, in other words, um, sacred marriage is the key to becoming a god, according to a lot of the ancient um, Christian writers. Now, the 4th century Orthodox bishop, um, John Chrysostom, he was the bishop of Constantinople. He was a very powerful Orthodox uh, teacher. He compared becoming a god to getting married. <laughs> he said, quote, Just as two people are joined together in one flesh, yet all the while maintain the integrity of their separate identities, just as they share a single existence and hold all things in common, so the believer is joined to God in an ineffable communion, meaning ineffable means unspeakable, an unspeakable at one And uh, Professor Robinson, Stephen Robinson, at the BYU, he was an expert in ancient scripture. And he wrote this, he said, quote, Adam was intended from the beginning to become a god. His deification is promised in no uncertain terms in ancient writings, unquote. And, and those of us who are uh, descendants of Adam who remain faithful, right, are, are heirs to the inheritance of Adam, according to the uh, ancient writing, um, uh, Testament of Adam. Those of us who remain faithful are uh, so-called, are heirs to the inheritance of Adam because we are returning to Eden, okay, uh, which is the celestial kingdom. Now, Doctrine and Covenants 132 says that uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives, quote, have entered into their exaltation according to the promises and sit upon thrones and are not angels but are gods. That's uh, verse 37 of section 132. So marriage is essential to godhood because the whole definition of godhood is the power of the continuation of the lives. So does that answer that question? Wow, that's powerful. That's, I love how you've identified different resources outside the, the church to, to find a common thread of this idea of the becoming like God and, and marriage being connected to it. So does the book of Revelation teach that eternal marriage is connected to Godhood? Well, the book of Revelation is all about a wedding, right? Right, right, right. Because it centers on the marriage of bride and bridegroom. The book of Revelation confirms that the sealing of bride and groom is the ultimate end of the entire gospel plan, right? So this perspective helps us understand why John, the apostle, includes so much stuff about the stars and the heavens. But the saints said, um, oh, this is from the Gospel Topics essays, um, the awe inspired by creation hints at our creative potential in the eternities. Nothing less 
than the heavens above could serve John as symbolic of God's great plan. Now the stars, as we know, represent souls in the process of exaltation. In the Gospel of Philip, which is an ancient um, Gnostic text, quote, the children of the bridal chamber are numerous in the glories and have a single name, rest. <laughs> That's, they're called rest, R-E-S-T, rest. Mm. Huh. According to DNC 84, the Lord's rest is the fullness of his glory. So the Lord's rest means that the saints are now beyond the reach of temporal trials, right? Quote, there shall be no more curse, no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. I look forward to that day, not that pain. <laughs> Me too. As the winter months have come, <laughs> yes. the arthritis and the pain has yes. set in. Yeah. The knees, yeah. The knees and the shoulders, the... Yeah. Back, yeah. <laughs> verse uh, that was verse uh, four in um, chapter twenty-one. We've entered a very restful place here at the end of the book of Revelation. It's an eternal garden of Eden, but with the power of kings and queens and gods and goddesses that Adam and Eve did not have. Now they have. Wow. What do you mean by an eternal garden of Eden? John's vision ends in chapter 2, in an Eden-like place, okay? Why don't you read chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Okay. And the angel shewed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Yeah, that's, there's a lot of symbolism packed in that one. Yeah, that, those two verses. Yeah. Let me call attention to two features. There are two features of the Garden of Eden here, right? A river of pure water and the tree of life, right? Both were in... Eden, which Adam and Eve, the tree of life, Adam and Eve were forbidden to touch it, right? Now that they're worthy of the Lord's trust, having, you know, demonstrated, proven their, their faithfulness, they get to partake of the tree of life and live forever. What does the river signify? Well, the river is another, you know, very fraught, very polyvalent symbol. Um, the pure river satisfies many kinds of thirst, right? As in Proverbs 18, it says that, that for those who lack wisdom, the wellspring of wisdom is the flowing brook, and the Lord is the source of wisdom. So for those who crave knowledge and wisdom, quote, unto him that keepeth my commandments, I will give the mysteries of the kingdom, and the same shall be in him a well of living water, springing up unto everlasting life. That's from Doctrine and Covenants 16, 23. Do you, do you remember what the mysteries of the kingdom are? Yeah, the mysteries of the kingdom are the temple ordinances. That's right. We receive the living water through the mysteries of the kingdom, which are the temple ordinances. That's an important realization. 
So as long as we're faithful to the ordinances and covenants of the priesthood, we can partake of the living water, which, remain, which, which means receiving more light and knowledge. Now, on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, right? Okay. What does that mean, 12 kinds of fruit that are yielded every month? Well, that, that's another reference to the sky, to astronomy. The ancients saw the tree of life as in the center of the celestial throne room. It grew out of the center. In Jewish lore, the tree filled the heavens, and, and the crown of the tree measured 360 degrees around. <laughs> so uh, the tree is a symbol of the universe. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, the 360 degrees represent the whole eternal round, Okay of the universe. And those 360 degrees were divided into 12 segments, right, of 30 degrees each, and each segment corresponded with one month, right? Mm -hmm. So you have 12 months. Mm -hmm. So the fruit that represents eternal life is dispensed in an orderly fashion in an eternal round, okay? It's a constant source of spiritual nutrition. Uh, in an eternal round, orderly eternal round, uh, for the course of the Lord is one eternal round, okay? What about the healing power of the leaves? Can I get, I need to get my hands on those leaves. Some, yeah. some leaves please. to heal the pain. Leaves, please. Yeah. In, in Greco-Roman times, they saw the laurel tree as the noblest of trees, and they believed that laurel leaves could cure a lot of diseases, in particular they believed that laurel leaves could cure snake bite. Mm, that's very convenient. So this is a reference to the power of Christ to heal the wounds inflicted by whom? Satan. The old, the old serpent. Yeah, yeah, right? the, the snake. Yeah. yeah, so the leaves represent the healing power of the atonement. Wow, that's very cool. But the tree of life is an extremely rich symbol. Yeah. It would have suggested many meanings to John's listeners. For one thing, Tree of Life satisfies spiritual hunger, right? In his famous dream in 1 Nephi, Lehi describes the fruit as, uh, let's see, as, quote, most sweet above all that I ever before tasted, and as I partook of the fruit thereof, it filled my soul with exceedingly great joy, unquote. So the fruit satisfies those who yearn for purity. The fruit thereof was white, right? to exceed all the whiteness that I had ever seen, Lehi says. Now, apocryphal texts like the books of Enoch, uh, they have the same image in them. In one Gnostic text called The Origin of the World, it says, quote, The color of the tree of life is like the sun, and its branches are beautiful, its leaves like those of the cypress, and its fruit is like a bunch of grapes when it is white. So again, this white fruit is everywhere in ancient uh, literature. And in Second Enoch, the tree of life is in the third heaven. And it is, quote, gold-looking and crimson and with the form of fire. And in the Zohar, which is a medieval uh, Jewish work, uh, probably based on some ancient legends, the fiery tree of life resembles the menorah. Do you remember the menorah? Yeah. It was that... Uh, 
candelabra, mm-hmm. right, in the temple. It, it was a stylized tree of life. That's why it was in the temple. It's right. the tree of life, right? right? right. It's uh, the, the white blooming almond tree was the model for it. And um, it lit the interior of the temple anciently. To them, it was a token of the light of the Messiah, right, of Jehovah that fills the earth. And that light never fades, for we are told in Revelation, there shall be no darkness there. There shall be no night there. Uh, the Zohar goes on to say, quote, A light comes forth from the menorah, which divides into 70 lights, and those 70 lights into 70 luminous branches of the tree of life. Now, this is interesting. All of these, seven of this, 70 of that, 70 mm-hmm. of that. The seven branches of the menorah blossom into 70 branches to represent what? The 70 families of the human race. Now, in Genesis 10, we read about the 70 families. The numbers 7 and 70 and 700 and so forth, they signify fullness, right? We've seen that so many times. So looked at from this perspective, the tree of life is actually a vast family tree. Okay? Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Oh, so as each of those 70 branches produces another 70 branches, and so on and so forth, so it's the fullness of the family, okay, relation over time. Remember when you were in the temple and, and uh, in the ceiling room and you saw the, the mirrors, the, the, the massive reflection going yeah. on and on and on and on yeah. and on forever? That's kind of like the symbolism of the tree of life because what you're seeing is the, uh, is the eternal creation of this family that goes on and on forever. Uh, 70 times 70 times 70 times 70 and wow. so forth because it becomes a pretty large number. That's, that's exciting. Oh, that's beautiful. I seem to remember that the tree of life also represents Eve. Well, the tree of life represents Eve, uh, yes, as the symbol of all women. Tree is also a symbol of the exalted bride, right? Beneath the wedding canopy, which is something we've talked about before. She is radiant in white. Uh, she represents the Shekhinah, the divine light, was supposed to be in the Holy of Holies. She is the divine light personified. She is the mighty woman of Proverbs whose candle goeth not out. Okay? She is endlessly productive and generative, endowing her children with life and power. Quote, the tree of life which is planted in the middle of paradise will cause all trees to bear fruit and they will grow and sprout. So you see, uh, the tree of life is this image of an eternal increase, of e- an eternal family. That, oh, wow. There you go. That, that sounds grows cool. and grows and grows. And to me, it's, it becomes very personal because I look at my 21 grandchildren and I think each of them is going to have 21 grandchildren or yeah, whatever, yeah. and then they will have 20. And as I look at my 21, I think, I cannot believe how much I love those kids. And so some people say, oh, I can't conceive of having this giant family. I don't know if I want to live in the celestial kingdom with this massive posterity, always, you know, reproducing, I think. Yeah, I can understand that point of view, but when I look at my 21... I think, how could I live without them? Right. You know? Because yeah. so, your love for them is infinite for yeah. each one of them. 
is infinite. So people say, well, how can you have infinite multiplied by infinite? Well, I'll tell you. you just look at my grandkids, yeah. okay? Yeah. And you'll see what I mean by infinite love multiplied by infinite yeah. love. I only have four, and I have the it same doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter how many. I'm sure. I'm hopefully you can have one. You can have 30. You yeah. can have five. You know, yeah. It doesn't matter how many. I hope to get to 21 and or you'll, more. You, and, yeah. Well, the point is this. If they remain faithful, which has got to be your primary occupation. Absolutely. Right. Four can become infinity. That's true. And 21 can become infinity. And infinity equals infinity. So we're all equal. <laughs> you see yeah, what I mean? There you go. I'm good with it. I'm okay. good with it. There's one puzzling thing here. John says he sees a tree of life on either side of the river of life. Is there more than one tree of life? I don't think that there's more than one, but I think that the root produces more than one tree. Oh, okay. You know, kind of like an aspen tree, you know, moving. Right, on. right. I think this is a reference back to chapter 11 of Revelation, where, um, where John sees, quote, two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, I think this is a complicated symbol, so stay with me. We first read about the two trees in the book of Zechariah, in chapter 4 of Zechariah, where he sees, the prophet sees two trees pouring the golden oil of the Spirit into the lampstand in the, in the temple. Now, this, of course, Zechariah, in Zechariah, the trees symbolize their role as providers of eternal light, right? Of the golden oil flowing into the lampstands from the trees. Follow very closely here. The two olive trees, according to Zechariah, also are two witnesses who stand in the last days teaching the gospel to the world, according to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 3. These symbols, the river and the tree, they're really complicated. Well, let, let's simplify it if we can. All these layers of symbolism are supposed to remind us of one thing, Jesus Christ. Right. The pure river of paradise and the tree of life both symbolize Christ. He gives us the fruit of eternal life and the water of life. All thirst, all hunger, all lack of any kind is satisfied in his atonement. Quote, John says in chapter 6, He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Unquote. So, and, and Nephi also really helps us understand this vision. He says in 1 Nephi 11.25, Quote, The word of God led to the fountain of living waters, or to the tree of life. <laughs> Isn't that interesting phrasing? Right, right. Okay. He says, the word of God led to the fountain of living waters or to the tree of life. Now, does, what does that or represent? It represents the fact that these two symbols are actually one thing. Okay. okay. All okay. right. Which waters are a representation of the love of God. And I also beheld that the tree of life was a representation of the love of God. So you see, that's what he means when he said the two symbols are actually represent the same thing. Okay. Yeah, I got it. Both water and tree signify divine love. So our job is to keep the commandments. As John says in chapter 22 of Revelation, he says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life.
Mm. Well, that sums up things nicely. It seems like we've come full circle back to the Garden of Eden, back to the heavenly temple. That's right. John's vision of the heavenly temple drama ends where it started, in the grand council chamber, clear back in chapter 4 of Revelation, where, quote, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands embrace one another and the Savior. And once again, the morning stars sing together and the sons of God shout for joy in this cosmic family circle. And there's one star that stands out among them, more brilliant than the rest, and that's the Savior. So in the very last chapter of Revelation, verse 16, he says this, quote, I am the bright and morning star. Unquote. That's what we've called this podcast series, is the bright and morning star, because that's who he is. He says he is the one sure light. We've followed from our primeval childhood through the Great Tribulation right up to the final scene here in a kind of paradise of the celestial world. He's righted every wrong we've suffered. By that time, he will have righted every wrong we've suffered. He will have corrected every mistake we've made. He will have made up for every injustice, paid the penalty for every broken law. Christ's atonement, this is a quote from a the church essay on becoming like God. Christ's atonement not only provides forgiveness from sin and victory over death, it also redeems imperfect relationships. There are a few of those around, right? Yeah. Heals the spiritual wounds that stifle growth and strengthens and enables individuals to develop the attributes of Christ, unquote. So now, at the end of the book of Revelation, the redeemed saints, now picture this, they take his wounded hand and embrace him, and he regards each one tenderly. Okay. In the last, in verse 4, it says, he wipes away all tears from their eyes. Consider that. We've all, we've all had a lot to cry about. That will be a great day. And that's the end of the book of Revelation. Well, not quite. Okay. No. <laughs> Jeez, I thought we were over. <laughs> uh, John closes the book with an epilogue, which consists of uh, chapter 22, verses 6 through 21. So we have one more podcast episode to go, and we will close our study of Revelation with John's last words, and that's next time. This has been a great experience to go through. 48 weekly episodes of the podcast, The Bright and Morning Star, about the temple and the book of Revelation. You'll want to pick up a copy of The Bright and Morning Star on Amazon. It will really help you with your study of the book of Revelation this month. And listen next week for our last podcast episode.